When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Welcome, Trevor. Hey, Ken. How's it going? Not too bad. How are you doing? Oh, it's a beautiful day in sports history. Do you know what day it is today? <sighs> yeah, I do believe this is uh, something Flames Banner Day. Yes, on this day, May 25th, 31 years ago, Lanny McDonald hoisted the Stanley Cup in the Montreal Forum as the Flames one one more cup than the Vancouver Canucks have. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, well, I, it, it almost led to a you know a different name for the Bleacher Connection. It was almost two fans, one cup, but I couldn't go with that, right? You know, <laughs> that's probably a good thing. <laughs> well, I mean, we are you know you got the COVID Cup coming up, so there's always that opportunity. That, that's that's very true. <laughs> No, okay, all right. What, uh, what's on the docket for today's show? All right. Well, today, what we're gonna we're gonna debut a a new segment. Uh, you know, kind of as we begin here, everything's everything's brand new. Uh, called that's offside, where we're kind of gonna take it, little uh, kind of Peter Griffin, grind my gears and talk about some things that just aren't sitting right with us. We're uh. We're going to discuss the 24-team playoff format that the NHL is putting forward. We're going to discuss quality of play between leagues like the NHL and the NBA coming back to finish. And Major League Baseball, who's all just had their foot on the gas, getting ready, going through spring training. And the NFL is going to be starting up in the near future here. Then we're going to finish the, uh, the show off with a top 10 Canucks list. Which I'm very excited to go through. Uh, this, that, yeah, this isn't going to be fun. I'm done. <laughs> All right. So this is the Bleacher Connection with Just Ken then. He's probably going to spend the next three hours telling you why the Flames are not great. No, I'm, just, I'm, I'm kidding. Okay. Well, why don't you give us a little recap of what we briefly talked about last week, Ken, for any of our listeners out there who can't remember, such as myself. <laughs> All right. That and for anyone who's catching episode two before episode one, uh, last week we talked about we went over hockey and sports culture and you know the comments that Brendan Leipzig made, and it's really it's disappeared. It seems no one's talking about it anymore. Disappointingly, so. Yeah, uh, I, I think you know we kind of talked about it. No one wants the keyboard warriors looking through their history if uh, if they come out and say that's that wasn't right. Uh, we we talked about uh, some some COVID related topics. One was the CFL looking for the uh, government assistance bailout, if you will. Uh, Another to keep... topic that's gone quiet. Yeah, I mean, and hopefully that's because they're working on something. But it would be 
you know, I think a lot of people are wanting to know, considering they'd be in training camp right now. And we, we talked about the state of sports post COVID and, you know, what's it going to be like a, to be a fan going back to uh, the games. And then lastly, we talked about what has this pandemic robbed us of uh, for storylines. And then, you know, I think it was perfect. You reminded me one I completely forgot about, but you know, glad you were there. Houston to, Astros. The Houston Astros. Yeah. Um, the 2020 bean, you know, beaning tour. Yeah, the MLB versus Astros Redemption Tour. Yeah. yeah I definitely want to, uh, would, would like to see that happen now. If they go with this realignment they talk about through spring training, you know, one can hope the Dodgers are uh, are in the same area, same division as, as the Astros. That could get interesting. I hope every team that the Astros robbed are in the same division as them. Yeah. Them and the Red Sox. Yeah. For sure, the, both or those they two can teams. Play the division by themselves, and nobody gets into the playoffs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they got to run the gauntlet. They got to beat uh, every every other team in a best of five to make make the playoffs. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ken, why don't you start off with our new segment? All right, start off. That's offside. For me, um, when the NFL debuted their schedule and they put out what games are going to be televised nationally, the primetime games. I kind of, I kind of felt a little disappointing and and that two, seven and nine teams got combined nine primetime spots. And what teams are those? Primetime games after finishing seven and nine and the Las Vegas Raiders, which I've almost missed said three times uh, I got four primetime games in there. You know, I think I, I see the reasoning behind it. I just don't like it. So you've got you know. Brady and the Bucks and the new wonder children, the Las Vegas Raiders. Yeah. I mean that I, I get the, the Raiders. You got a, that brand new state of the art stadium that you want to show off. But I mean, let's get some teams that made the playoffs in there a little bit more. Let's get some good, rivalry games in prime time right i think you know it's like last year we you know everyone hyped the the cleveland browns but they're still the browns regardless of having obj uh mayfield put the teams that are in there that are gonna give the fans a good show let's see them playing in the prime time spots we all know the browns are gonna brown yeah <laughs> yeah that's uh doesn't matter who they got at wide receiver quarterback that that franchise is uh that's in a world of hurt almost as bad as the cincinnati bungles i guess <laughs> yeah but i mean at least they uh they made the playoffs last in in the last little bit here too so they turned it around for a little bit i don't think you can say that about cleveland so for nope, yes yeah. I, I think you're correct yeah so for me that was just i just I get it. Everyone wants to see Brady and the Bucks now perform, you know, so give them a few, but I, I think you got to spread it out from five, you know, Gronk's there uh, to make it an interesting primetime game. You know, Gronkowski's little WWE spell. He's the 24 seven champ. So he's, you know, score a touchdown. He's got to defend the belt. I'll tune in we to watch to, that. We would love to see the Undertaker come out and give him a tombstone in the end zone yeah. after a game-winning touchdown. 
Shawn Michaels comes out of retirement, sweet chin music. Yeah, that would definitely be worth watching. Though I do understand wanting to watch Brady, though. He is the greatest of all time, Ken. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I've never been a Brady fan, but I, I never take away from his talent. Um, you know, I, I selfishly would put Joe Montana ahead of that just because that's how much I dislike Brady. I don't want to see him at the top of that list. Well, don't let me do a ring count on you. <laughs> Easy. This isn't a LeBron versus Jordan discussion. Jordan's clearly better. Well, yeah. He's got the rings. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> My point exactly. That argument only works with Jordan and LeBron. Okay. <laughs> Remember, Brady's I can... just exempt to all other arguments. That's right. When when he plays a full season with fully inflated uh, footballs, then I'll I can talk. I'll I'll give oh, it to okay. him. <laughs> I, I guess as a Seahawks fan, watching Brady win a Super Bowl is is painful. Oh, it was just his reaction. Like he did something to win that game. It was the fact that you throw on the one when you got a wrecking ball in the backfield named Marshawn Lynch that, you know, three guys trying to tackle him, he's still going to average three yards. He was scared of getting Skittles rained on him. Ugh. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the uh, bonus check for winning the second Super Bowl would have been made it all better. Yeah. Well, Ken, I think that's a, a really good topic for our your first introductory That's Offside. Uh, I'm going to move on to my topic. And to me, I've recently watched the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance. And let me tell you, it was phenomenal. As a teenager growing up watching the mid-90 Bulls, I was enthralled by them. And they were everything. Michael Jordan is, was, and still is the greatest of all time. Now, within the documentary, they looked at a lot of different players and, you know, including Scottie Pippen, which I think he got an unfair uh, point of view placed on him. And uh, with also Dennis Rodman, I think they could have done another 10 episodes on Dennis Rodman alone. And the issue that I have with the documentary is when you have Dennis Rodman and Carmen Electra, how does that not garner more airtime? Any chance to have Carmen Electra on screen in your face is a tremendous thing, in my opinion. And I think it was an opportunity that was missed greatly. What man does not want to watch and remember Carmen Electra now and in the mid-90s when she was an absolute smoke show? So to Michael Jordan, not having Carmen Electra on screen a lot more, that's offside. <laughs> Now I gotta say, I mean, you didn't hit me with the spoiler alert because I'm only on episode finished episode three, so I'm just getting to that good good part of Dennis Rodman and Carmen Electra, and now I know I don't have a lot much more to look forward to on that. But I do agree, whatever the doctors are prescribing her, yeah, it's working. They could have, and further to the that's, I guess that's offside. There's a lot of people out there who are criticizing Michael Jordan for the content that was released on the show. And I think a lot of people are misunderstood about what the purpose of the show was. It wasn't meant to be a, a chronological order of all the sports happenings in the world. It was meant to be entertainment. And I, for one, was very entertained. It was very well done, maybe a little biased, 
but hey, when you have creative control, you can put whatever you want. And to the people criticizing Michael Jordan for the content he did release, that's also offside. Well, I think the the from what I've seen so far, the nice thing is you're getting a behind the scenes look that you don't always get. Right. So if that's what if getting that content from them is this is how we do it, then I say go for it. Let's do more. Let's get more behind the scenes of what's going on when when the cameras aren't there and the players are on the road and stuff like that. Let's hear about it. We always get the, you know, cliche, you know, gotta gotta keep the sticks on the ice. You gotta get yourself in a good defensive you know, all those cliche interview type things. Let's hear the real thing. It was very refreshing to hear some of the stories, true or not, whether the food poisoning incident was true or not, it was still great entertainment. And Ken, you'll understand what I'm talking about, I believe, in episode nine. <laughs> All right. But again, it was great entertainment. And rumors have it that ESPN has already put the word out there that they're looking to do more of them. And two of the athletes they're looking at are Kobe Bryant and Ken should like this one, Tom Brady. Well, as long as they can get Tom Brady to give up, you know, some footage on Robert Kraft at that salon so that he looks a little more embarrassing for the Pats franchise. I think at this point, he's willing to take him down. Well, I think we should move on to our first topic, Ken, if you want to introduce it. All right. So what we're going to be talking about now is we're going to take a look at the the NHL's 24-team playoff format thanks to the COVID pandemic. Uh, so I, I don't know, Trevor, what, what are your thoughts on this? I, it's a tough one. I personally, I do not like it one bit. I am a diehard sports fan, Flames fan, hockey fan, NHL fan, and I do not like it one bit. I think there's... I understand wanting to finish the season for monetary reasons, but to me, it, it's just not right. No, and I, I, there, I agree. There's a few fatal flaws in it, in my opinion. Um, the format, first of all, is just not right to me. How you can how you can now allow 24 teams essentially into the playoffs is it just seems awkward to me. And I know in earlier, you know, versions of the NHL, they used to let in, you know, 20 of 24 teams. So large portions got into the playoffs or, or 16 of 24. And I get that large portions got into the playoffs, but in this season, it just, it doesn't feel right. And as we talked about in last week's episode, the momentum of the season is gone and finishing as one of the higher seeds, in my opinion, is now actually a detriment. And the reason I believe that is those top four seeds in each, I guess, pod, we'll call it, are going to have some kind of play in round themselves to determine seeding. Well, in my opinion, those games aren't going to have near the intensity as the best of five play-ins that their eventual opponents are going to play. So I, I think there's going to be a major problem where the, the teams coming in off the best of five are going to have a lot less rust than the teams that should have an advantage in the first place. And those are 
the higher seeds. No, I, I, absolutely. I, I'm not a fan of it. I I don't want to see a Stanley Cup playoffs that's played between the 12th place team in the East versus the 10th place team in the West. It's just, it, it you know, it's not, I don't think it's right. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, Killorn of the Tampa Bay Lightning who represented them in the vote. I think he made some good points is that this isn't, there's teams that are going to make the playoffs that don't deserve it. And absolutely, he's not wrong. And he talked about the the round robin for the top four teams. That right there is a joke. So if you're the top team in the league right now, you would go in and play, you know, the 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 12th place team if they get through. Now, if you got to play a round robin just to figure out where you're going to seed, what was the point of the season then? You know, right? You so what you're going to risk your top guys getting hurt just to reseed? I don't, I mean, it's kind of hokey, right? I don't like to see it. If they're going to come back, finish the season as is, um, and then go into the Stanley Cup playoffs like you normally would. Now, I've, I've got a different, I've got a different proposal, which I think would make it way more interesting because you also have seven teams sitting at home. So, what I think they should do is have your, ha- take your top eight teams, right? Call it right now. If you're in the top eight, you're in. Now, there's a little bit of unfairness in that because there's some teams who haven't played as many games as the teams in the playoffs. And if you're rolling back, there may be some changes. Forget it. Just call it. If you're in, you're in, right? Because then you're taking away points from here or there. And how do you figure that out, right? So just call it. If you're one to eight, you're in. Now, you take the remaining teams in the league and you want to talk about a round robin? create a round robin for them, but those teams are playing for lottery picks. How you finish in that tournament of, of losers or non-qualifiers, if you want to be nicer, that's how you draft. The winner gets first, whoever places second picks two, third, and so on. That way, the Ottawa Senators, the, the Detroit uh, Red Wings, the California teams, all those teams at the bottom of the league, they got to work to get that pick. It's not just about, well, I'm just going to sit back. I'm not playing now anyways. My chances for the first overall pick's a lot higher. Make them play for it. Make them play for that lottery pick. That's a very unique proposal. And it actually goes further to years past where it's always been my belief that the worst team in the league shouldn't get the best draft odds. I think it should be the first team to miss the playoffs should get the best draft lottery odds. I think that would eliminate the tanking for McDavid that go went on or Eichel or whoever. And it actually forces team to teams to try to win hockey games to succeed and not lose hockey te- hockey games to succeed. So I think the, that's a very unique idea, Ken. And I've thought of something similar for every. Yeah. Season. I mean, just to think about it, the Ottawa Senators, how many contracts of players that are essentially retired due to injury do they have on their roster just to have gotten to the salary cap floor? So if that's how you're getting to the salary cap floor, you're not going out and getting players that are going to make your team good. You're going to be bringing up guys that are really green, not necessarily ready for the NHL in a rebuild that's going to guarantee you you're going to finish last. So I, I just think if you're going to play, let's just 
keep the playoffs the way it is. Don't have seven teams sit at home and twiddle their thumbs. Bring them back. And then that way, that's going to be some exciting hockey. That hockey, I mean, it may not rival the the playoffs, but we're not getting that atmosphere one way or another. But those teams... If, no, that's a yeah. very good it, Those teams are going to, that are vying for a, a lottery pick spot. They're going to be going out and playing hard because the teams, like you say, that are just missing the playoffs, they're the teams that have already gone through a rebuild. And due to the draft lottery rules where now the top three picks are redone and you can fall from third to six, like they, this would be a way to keep it competitive and actually have teams going out there and, and busting their ass to try and win. And I think it'd be very entertaining hockey for the most part. Yeah. Another issue I have with the proposed format is from my understanding, finishing as the top seed may actually put you at a disadvantage as finishing as the fourth seed because the top seed guarantee has to play either seed eight or nine. Whereas the fourth seed may have an opportunity to play the 13th seed, which to me is insane. So I think there should be after the play in round, there should no matter what be another reseeding of the teams to make sure that the best team, the top number one seed plays the lowest seed. And from my understanding, it's not designed that way. right? Yeah, now. but you're not going to have the true number one team in each conference getting the shot at the uh, the lowest lowest seeded team because of this round robin. I just don't get why they're trying to mess with it so much. I get this is a, a hopefully a one-off season, but let's try and keep it as as real as we can keep it. My understanding is there's TV dollars at D or TV deal dollars in play. Where if the the NHL doesn't finish this season, then I believe it's NBC has the rights to next season for free. So I read that on a tweet from a sports reporter. I. I would acknowledge them. I can't remember who it was, but if that's the case, then I fully understand why the NHL insists on finishing, even when it's going to come as a detriment to the players, the fans, just the overall product. Yeah. And I I've read and heard the same thing that it's due to the contracts with the U S TV that's putting them in this position that they, they have to finish because they've in the contract. Yeah. NBC is guaranteed X number of games and playoffs. So yeah, yeah it's a, it's a position that they don't want because doesn't the new TV deal kick in next year, which was supposed to up the salary cap by quite a bit. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. not going to happen. <laughs> right. Another issue I have with the format is say they do go through with this. It would be my opinion that, this the top four player teams would have to do their series first because to me if they knew that there was an opportunity to play let's say the 13th seed because they upset the five seed i honestly believe that you may not have as competitive of games because one of those teams may actually be trying to throw the games to finish yeah. fourth because they know they get to play 13 and not eight or nine yeah, and that's, I mean, but also the risk just playing that round robin. 
can you imagine if a uh, Steven Stamkos goes down or Kucherov goes down, you know, the lightning lose uh, Vasilevsky, all those kind of things. Those top players go down in a, what really is a meaningless game before they're supposed to get into their playoff yeah. round. And like you say, Exhibition-esque. yeah. So, you know, we already had those games to seed the teams. It's called the regular season. Yeah, another issue I have with the the proposal in general is in no way does it put the player's safety at the forefront. This is strictly, and everybody knows it, a money grab by the NHL, as was discussed with TV deals. And it surprisingly has shocked me that the NHLPA has agreed to everything so far, knowing that they're health and safety may not be priority number one when all is said and done. Yeah, and I mean, you got players on the ice that are going to be within proximity of each other. They're going to be hitting, you know, seeing the whole thing where they're going to say no scrums, no fighting, all those types of things. But it's the, once they get in that game, is that what they're going to be thinking about? Or is there are they going to be in game mode going, we need to win this effing game? Right. They're going to yeah. be in game mode. We saw it with something as simple as the, the shootout yesterday with Tiger and Phil and Brady and Manning, where Brady sinks an eagle putt on hole 11. And first thing he tries to do is give a high five and realizes about three quarters swing through that he can't. And it made for the, the second most awkward thing that happened on that broadcast. Uh, obviously, the first was him splitting his <laughs> pants, but it's natural. It's human nature to want to celebrate. What's going to happen when they score a goal in overtime? Are they all going to jump onto the ice and then create stand six feet apart from each other and celebrate the goal? Or are they even going to celebrate? Yeah, and I think it was uh, Giordano of the Flames who I read was – trying to talk to his teammates and tell him like, you know, if we're going to play, let's come up with some like touchdown style celebrations. Cause we can't go in and high, like you say, high five, you know, hug a guy in the court, whatever they do, they can't do that. So we got to be creative with it. Now, to be fair, go back to your Tom Brady high five comment. That is not the first time he's been left hanging when he was, <laughs> no, he's yeah. very used to it. That's a ritual on the Patriots Yeah, so much sideline. so that they put it in Madden 20, and I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that also worries me is not even the, the health and safety, physical health and safety of the players, is the mental health and safety of the players. These players are potentially going to be secluded from their family, their friends, for months on end and imagine being stuck in Edmonton, sorry, Ken, for months on end quarantined in a hotel. And I know they're putting out all these stats of how safe Edmonton is, but let's be honest. If one player gets it, that's going to cause a, a shutdown again of the league and potentially derail this whole thing the players are going to be expected to be quarantined almost 24-7. And as it stands now, they're only looking at testing twice a week, 
if I read that correctly today. And the, the teams, it's up to their to the individual teams to do the testing. Well, it's also, this reminds me of the concussion protocol when it's up to the individual teams to do that as well for the longest time. And they were hiding yeah. concussions. Well, are these teams going to hide COVID cases? Yeah, it's just, it's one of those things where I don't, I don't think it's well thought out. Because I, I've read there as well that, you know, even if a team has three players come down with with the vid, that it's not going to shut it down. Now, it doesn't even matter if the city you're playing in is safe. Again, everyone is going to be coming from somewhere that isn't where the games are going to be played. Is someone asymptomatic? Are they coming in already with it and they don't know it? Are they going to pass it along to their teammates, their coaches, the training staff? And yet they're fine. Is the testing good enough? Are we to really be trusted that we're going to get accurate results back and to do it only two times a week? If that's what they're doing, that's definitely not enough. You got other leagues talking about doing it daily, right? Yes. So. Well, with a 24 hour turnaround. So let's suppose they get tested on a Monday play on a Tuesday and Wednesday, well, they may have already played a game without knowing. And then they could potentially play two games without really knowing, say they're asymptomatic or say they got a false negative or a false positive on the result. I just think twice a week isn't enough when they're looking at playing four or five games a week you're not going to have the results back fast enough and they're going to. Yeah. And, and the other part too, I think you make make a good point with the, uh, the mental health side of it. Cause a lot of them, a lot of players have brought up the fact that they're going to be away for so long. Now, the only way to do that is to have facilities that can handle playing two, three games a day, potentially, but that's not going to happen because of the TV but you're going to have to play as many games as you can. as a short period of time. I don't know how many of these guys are going to be ready to go come puck drop. How many of them have home home gyms? How many of them have their own little piece of ice they can skate on and stay ready? Well, and they're also talking about only allowing six players on the ice at a time. Are you, for practice, are you going to have enough time to get back into game shape when you're only allowing a certain amount of players at a time on the ice? And I'm, I'm really worried. And again, back to the mental health portion, these players are going to get bored. These players are going to make mistakes because they're bored. They're going to do things out of character because they're bored. It's, it's asking a lot of these players to pretty much confine them to hotel rooms in one city for months on end. And especially if it's not a very nice city, it's, it's very difficult, although it may be easier in a not as nice city. Suppose you had to end up in Las Vegas. There would be a lot of temptation. Well, there, I mean, but I just, they're away from their families and it doesn't seem right to me. And I have a really hard time believing that players with families will sign off. Vegas made sense before they opened back up. 
just for the fact that if Vegas isn't going, then whatever, there's nothing really there to draw the players out. I mean, you have all those resorts. You could put, you could put a team in one, one resort right by T-Mobile arena. And then you're good. You got everyone in one building, right? That would have worked, but now you got the casinos are opening up. They're bringing people back in. So if that's the case, you're now increasing the draw of people potentially mingling with the players. Cause I, you can't really, I mean, I don't think you can shut down an entire casino resort for the NHL and lock everyone else out. No, I agree with you. I think this is a bit of a, uh, a scatterbrained idea, and I fully understand why they want to do this. It's about dollars and cents. It's about getting sports back on TV. It's about trying to cater to your sports fans. But again, and we discussed this last week, I think it may do damage, and it's not going to be what we expect, and we're going to be let down by the product on the ice, the eventual champion. Again, it's going to be the asterisks beside the COVID cup champions and the integrity of all the, you know, 60 to 70 games that were played up until this point is completely thrown out. Absolutely. And I was just going to ask that because I know for myself, you know, you brought up the asterisks next to the, to the win. If you win the cup, I know if the Canucks win great, but it's not going to feel like a, a real win because everyone will just be like, Oh, the only one because of the yep. COVID you we weren't supposed to be there. Well, yeah. Okay. You're, you're not wrong. They won, but everyone, whoever wins, this is not going to be looked at as a true winner. That's my take on it. And I couldn't, couldn't agree more. It's, it's not going to be the real deal. You know, hockey fans expecting it to be the real deal are going to be sadly mistaken. And as discussed last week, the broadcasts are going to be very, very different. And they're going to have to figure out a way to make the broadcast way more viewer friendly than what they do now. And I think that's going to be extremely difficult because you just can't have people there to do it. So I don't know. I'm, I'm a diehard hockey fan, but I am adamantly against this return. The idea of a return. Let's, nothing is set in stone, and I actually still don't believe they will play. But there's, they're definitely close. Yeah, to that, that is for sure. And I think this topic can leads very well into our next topic of the quality of the play that we're going to witness as a result of this. So why don't you uh, lead off with that talk with that? Yeah. So, I mean, sticking with the hockey part real right here in the beginning, just, you know, Patrick Liney, the Winnipeg Jets, he's already said his game's going to look terrible. So why are we we rushing to get this back? That's, I just, it's, I find that the difficult part is, you know, how are these guys supposed to have stayed in shape, right? Let's talk, you know, you've got the NHL and NBA that are trying to finish their seasons out. You know, the NBA is talking about playing at Disney World, everyone in one spot. Now their full proposal 
I don't think has come out. I don't know if they're talking about finishing the regular season, then going into a proper playoffs. Regardless, the initial proposal, I guess it's not a proposal. The initial rumor I saw was they were going to cut off the season as is and just do a seeding one to 16. Doesn't matter. And that's, that's fine. At least it's the 16 teams that would have been there regardless. Um, But again, I mean, like, you know, there were some rumblings that LeBron's held some practices one-on-one with teammates and kept the social distancing, you know, and I, I think, for an NBA player, it might be easier to have a home court in your, in wherever you are for a hockey player. How do you have like keeping an ice rink year round? That's difficult. If you're say living in a city only part time, do you have an accessible gym to keep yourself in shape? Keep, keep working out, keep that normal for you that you would on a game day or a practice, whatever. I just think it's really going to suffer. I don't think it's going to be good. And I would agree with you. And you actually discussing home courts brought me up to a point I missed on the last topic of an issue I have with the proposal. And actually that topic is the host cities. Now, for example, say Edmonton is chosen as a host city. i adamantly believe Edmonton should not get to play in Edmonton as that would create an unfair advantage to some of the teams within the pods that shouldn't exist. So Edmonton should have to play out of Miami, let's say, and not out of. Yeah. Or there needs to be someone from the NHL there making sure that every team has access to everything that is the same, right? So no, if you're, you know, if you're a team from that host city, you don't get the extra hours in the gym. You don't get the extra time on the ice. Everyone's allotted X number of time on the ice, X number of time on the, in the gym and all the other facilities as well. Cause again, they also got to make sure they can go in there and clean it afterwards. So yeah. I just think keeping everyone up to game pace is going to be very difficult and how many guys are going to come out and tweak something pull a groin to you know pull a hamstring you know quad whatever in the first five minutes because maybe they were you know a little too much netflix and chill during the lockdown as opposed to i'm gonna go hit the gym because they may not have had the opportunity you know you take guys living in downtown vancouver you know do they necessarily have a home gym in their apartment if that's what they live in? Things like that. The guys that don't live here and are rooming with someone else, it's going to be difficult. Yes, I also think the the quality is going to suffer because it's going to be a watered-down version of every sport. It doesn't matter how we slice it. Not having fans in the building major major disruption major change there's going to be restrictions on in my opinion in hockey especially on physical contact on being able to tie a player up against the wall and pin him the face-offs they're already discussing having everybody the the wingers stand six feet apart from each other on face-offs 
And I just think it's going to turn out to be an extremely watered down version of what our expectations are. And there's not going to be, or there shouldn't be the, and you brought it up earlier, the post whistle scrums. Well, that is part of the fabric of the NHL. The, the stuff after the whistle, what you can and can't get away with. It, it's part of playoff hockey and it's part of what makes a playoff series so great. And I think the NBA will have a similar issue. How can you have guys guarding each other in the low post where the other guy has his hands on the other player at all times and his, his arm in the back or boxing out is going to be an issue because they're going to try to eliminate as much physical contact as possible. And it's not well, the NBA. The I mean, the solution game. for them, they can just go to masks and nitro gloves uh, for gameplay. And then you get a little less contact, but I mean, unless they're going to give the centerman Zidane Chara length sticks to do the face-offs and, zone like you say zone out the face-offs for the wingers it's going to be difficult the only way you're going to make it work where you're not giving uh oh brad marchant two minutes for um you know being within six feet you know two minutes for non-social distancing is if you turn it into a bubble hockey game where everyone plays in a line and it plays in a zone it'll essentially be field lacrosse on ice where everyone can only stay in their one little area to try and defend from six feet away. They can go to ringette style hockey where certain players of say that they have different colored skates on, can't go past yeah. certain areas on the ice. I, I just don't know how you're going to like you put 10 skaters and a goalie in, inside the blue line. And there's not a lot of space that isn't taken up. Yeah. Well, what about referees? Are they going to maybe only have one referee and one? Well, they can referee the from ice? the stands at center ice and maybe get a call right. People in the stands <laughs> seem to call more penalties than the the refs and do, so little, it might work. Yeah, and little things like the war room in Toronto. How is that going to work? Are they going to have? a bunch of people sitting there not social distancing from each other. And there's just so many aspects, especially in the NHL. But I think that spill into every sport that are just going to make. Yeah. This I mean, not we're kind of switching gears. You had major league baseball in the beginnings of spring training. So do you think they're at a loss? Like they're talking about an 81 game schedule, cutting it in half, but they can still get in a bit of a camp guy should be able to still stay fairly ready to go um, at home. Yeah. I think it's easier in some of the other sports to do some training at home where you don't need that physical sheet of ice, such as in hockey, but you know, baseball, I've thought of some other rules that, I've, I've wondered is, can you hold a runner on at first base? Or is there going to be different, you know, rules about how far a player can lead off first base because you can't, you know, hold a guy on at first base? Or are they going to try to eliminate stealing because that might result in two players racing to a bag 
to try to, you know, have contact with each other. And I know they've talked about eliminating collisions at home plate as well. Well, in my opinion, they yeah. have to do that. I think, at I think maybe the one thing that you could take from the Korean baseball league is the fact that they're playing with masks. So if you're, if you're yeah. an infielder, if you're a batter, you, you go up to the plate wearing a mask, you're the umpire, you're wearing a mask, right? You change it out. If it gets dirty, you sweat. Okay. Change it out. If they can get their hands on a bunch of masks, why not do that? Then you can eliminate some of that. Let's tinker with the rules to make this work. You can play the game, right? Yeah. But even masks aren't 100% effective. And say you do have a bunch of athletes, you know, sweating and, you know, spitting into these masks because you're going to do that when you're running. When they take those off, are they just releasing a bunch of yeah. COVID particles into the air? And I don't know, but I just, again, I said this earlier, the health and safety of the players, in my opinion, is not paramount. And what would happen if a player died because a league chose to resume their season Yeah, when it wasn't safe? What's the repercussions of that? And nobody is talking about that right now because there's a common misconception that only old people die of the COVID virus. Well, that's not necessarily true. They may have a higher likelihood, but they're not the only ones. And what if we lose an all-star athlete to death because of filling a TV deal? Money. It, yeah, it's, it's just not right. Yeah, and that's it's all I mean, for a TV deal. You don't want it to happen, but it's the reality of it that there is the potential. This is a very, you know, deadly virus that is taking people of different a- ages. You like, you can't like you say you can't say it's just the old because it's affecting everyone. There has not the people that have have unfortunately passed yeah. away are not just of one demographic. Well, you know, and some of them no, may not. have had underlying health issues before. Some of them are also healthy well before. So good luck trying to yeah. figure out how it attacks and how it chooses. So I, I, I personally feel like it's very reckless by any sports league, especially ones that there has to be physical contact between players that it's, it's extremely reckless and players are going to get sick. Players are going to catch the virus. It's There's no doubt in my mind. And what if, for example, they do host in Edmonton and players end up bringing the virus to the city that right now really doesn't Yeah, I mean, it's virus. all a big risk. They're, they're, it's like a game of Russian roulette. Instead of a bullet, it's a, it's a deadly virus. Exactly. Well, Ken, I think we should move on to, I guess, the next portion of the show. I, uh, I, oh, I, I mean, I and to be fair, this. this was your idea to yeah. start with the Canucks. So I, 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 I was a little surprised because it wasn't the top 10, you know, losers on the Canucks or the top 10, you know, disappointments. It was, you know, top 10 Canucks. So. Okay, so I guess the topic that we're going to discuss is the top 10 Vancouver Canucks of all time. 
And I'm going to preface this from Ken is going to choose the top 10 Vancouver Canucks of all time from his perspective. And I'm going to choose them from my perspective. And my perspective is I'm a Calgary Yeah, so I know you needed the whole week to go through this as well. You did make that very clear. Yes, it was a lot of... Um, well, I had said earlier in the week that we might have to scale it back to top three, and I may struggle to get to that. Or I said we may have to stretch this on for a month. But I think I've done a really good job of my list. And I think you'll be very impressed with the, the thought that I have put into my list of greatest Vancouver Canucks of all time. I, and I, I am interested to hear where everyone kind of fell on your list and actually how many of them we got that are the same. Um, there probably is going to be some, some differences in our list, but I think did, we wanted to start with some guys that didn't quite make the 10, right? Kind of figure give a few that uh, were just on, on the bubble. Some honorable mentions. Some so, honorable mentions. You know, for myself, I think, if, and I think we're going to throw in a few midway through as well, but, you know, guys for me that kind of just fell a little short on the list for whatever reason. And again, from, I took it from my perspective as a fan and what some of these guys meant to me as a fan and why they made my list potentially over some others. So again, we talk about, this is just our thoughts, our opinions. So um, a guy like Yurke Lume, it was tough. It was tough not putting him on that list for, I tried to, Yurke Lume, I, I had, uh, I tried to mix it up with the list so that I had, you know, a semi-fair number of forwards, defensemen, goaltenders, and Lume was one of the guys I, I had him penciled in. I actually had him written down in pen and then I realized who I forgot and I was like, oh, I can't do that. So unfortunately, Lume was a guy that uh, is an honorable mention for me, Cliff Ronning, uh, guy Brendan Morrison. With an asterisk, Todd Bertuzzi. He's he's on the outside looking in for me. We'll have to see if he made my list or not. Well, for me, there's a, a few honorable mentions I'm going to bring up right away. The very first one being the mess. Sergio Momesso. He deserves an honorable mention <laughs> strictly because of his name. If that is not one of the sexiest hockey names ever, I don't know what is. So shout out to Sergio Momesso for an honorable mention. Uh, honorable mention number two and three on my list are going to go to Wow, honorable mentions. Alexander McGillney, who, who, based on my criteria, did not make my list of greatest Canucks of all time. And as I get going on my list, I think that will be understandable as to why they're not on my list. So, Ken, why don't you take the honor and start All right, off with so number, number 10, 10 on my on list. Your list. And, uh, I think I, I texted you earlier and I said, you might, uh, you might question and wonder about my number 10. It's, uh, it's Kevin Bieksa. Now <laughs> for me, this is a guy that played 597 sure. games with the Canucks. He had 241 points. What really got me to pick him in my top 10 
was the leadership he brought on the ice and in the locker room. And I think when he went to Anaheim, you could see the difference in the team because they didn't have, they didn't have his leadership, his, you know, it's kind of his play on the ice was, okay, I'm going to go through, I'm going to, I've got your back. I'm going to help you out. He was just that guy, in my opinion, that his leadership, like he'd go to war for the guys on the ice, his teammates. And for me, that's what put him at number 10. Unless it meant going against Michael Furland, but more on that later. Okay, well, that's a, a an interesting choice for number 10. I toyed with the idea of having Kevin Bieksa on my list as well. Uh, spoiler alert, he's not, though he does receive some honorable mentions uh, when I discuss a few other players. Um, number 10 on my list Jovokop. is Ed Jovanovsky. Jovokop. I believe he was a f- for former first uh, overall pick of Florida, if I remember correctly. No, I didn't. Um, I didn't actually. He was, that yeah, up, he was a very high there, pick with so the Panthers. Um, Jovo played seven years with the Canucks. Uh, he played 434 games. He had 57 goals, 177 assists for 230 points, a stellar minus three overall in the plus minus. And he had a rugged 536 penalty minutes. But here's why Jovanovski made my list. Of those 536 penalty minutes in his career with the Canucks, two of those really stand out to me. Ed Jovanovski took a selfish penalty at 1933 of the third period, which ultimately led to the Flames scoring on the power play in overtime of Game 7 in 2004, thus eliminating the heavily favored Canucks in round one. So for that reason, Ed Jovanovski is number 10. I see what you're doing here. I see, I see. Of all time. Yeah, and wasn't that goal scored, unfortunately, by uh, another former Canuck, uh, Martin Jalna? Yeah, Yeah, I believe his name comes up later in my list as well. Start... He's not on. My it's list, starting to make sense now. I do believe he's in. He's mentioned. <laughs> All right. So for my number nine, and uh, this is kind of where I said I had someone else penciled in, and then realized I completely forgot someone. I really don't know how that happened, but uh, Marcus Nasland, you know, a guy, captain of the Canucks, played 884 games, 756 points, a uh, very crucial piece of the West Coast Express probably one of the team's most dominant lines that we we've been able to put out there as an organization. Um, and I think if the Pittsburgh Penguins had an opportunity to go back and say, I think we want a little more than Alex Stoinoff in this deal. Uh, it either doesn't happen or they're taking someone a lot better than, than Alex Stoinoff in that trade. Um, but he, he came in for number nine for me and it, it just, like I say, I, I had to a few a few ones where I had to go back and forth and it was, it was tough. And at first I couldn't believe I, I left him off. So he, he, he made the list as he should have, uh, but he's my number nine. Marcus Nasland is a, uh, an, an obvious choice for me. He actually probably would have ranked higher for me if I was a Canucks fan. He kind of was, he was everything on that team in the two thousands. He yeah, was, it, it, this list is a tough one in for my me. Opinion. So, yeah, yeah, Nasland is 
I respect Marcus Naslund, even though I hate him. Uh, number nine on my list of greatest Canucks all time is <laughs> none other than Sven Berchi. Sven Berchi has spent six years with the Canucks, totaling 225 goals, 58 or playing 225 games with 58 goals, shockingly, 52 assists for 110 points and a staggering minus 28. Berchi to me was an enigma in Calgary and Vancouver as his skill could never match his ethic. And within years of playing in both cities, he, he requested trades out of both of them. Sven hits this list not for his on-ice efforts, but for his off-ice returns. The second-round pick the Flames acquired in 2015 for Sven Berchi was used to draft a future top-four anchor on the Flames' blue line in Rasmus Anderson. Yeah, yeah, that was, a, you, that was a guy there that, you know, definitely I completely agree. He didn't really do a lot in Calgary, showed glimpses in Vancouver, but couldn't sustain whether that was just talent-wise, whatever, or injuries, it, 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 he had a tough go. And, yeah, whether he was asking for a trade or not out of Vancouver, um, I think the team would have obliged if they could have through their own decision-making for sure. Sven Berchi was supposed to – was given an unfair deal in Calgary. He was supposed to be the next Jerome McGinley. Obviously, that never panned out, and he fell out of favor with the coaching staff. I believe it was uh, uh, Hartley at the time who he fell out of favor with, and he was never given the opportunity again to be that player. And as we saw in Vancouver, he isn't that player. And I think, you know, his return of Rasmus Anderson for the Well, somebody got something out of it. Steal. All right, so my... Exactly. My number eight is well, who's Captain number Kirk. Eight on your list, Captain Ken? Kirk McLean. Uh, you know, goalie coming up. You know, came from the Devils organization, but you know, really, you know, 516 games played, 211 wins. He may have had 228 losses. Something that we don't hear about goalie stats anymore. He has 62 ties. Remember what a tie is? Not what you wear when a game ends in a draw. Um, 62 ties. 62 ties. <laughs> Just good enough but to be mediocre. His play in those early <laughs> to mid-90s, you look at the Canucks 94 team, the way he played, the stops he made, he was the reason that the Canucks went on in 94. He was a big part of why they won a lot of the games just to get to the to that point. They, didn't, they went in as a low seed, but they... I mean, that overall 94 team could be a top 10 spot just because of how, as one, they played. They came together as a team, but a lot of it, I think, you know, Kirk McLean's work, his, what he did for that team, he kept him in games. Um, I think for me, he was definitely in the top 10. Spoiler I, alert, Kirk I would probably imagine for not the same reason that he's in mine. <laughs> we'll find out. He, yeah. Spoiler alert, All right. So, who do you got at number eight of your? Well. Um... So, number eight on my list of greatest Vancouver Canucks of all time is none other than Michael Furland. 
Michael Ferlin has played a whopping 14 games for the Canucks in his career, scoring one goal and four assists for five points, and again, a minus three. Why does Michael Ferlin make my list? Michael Ferlin has the potential to be a dominating force in the NHL with a rugged two-way game and a lethal shot, but injuries and concussions have derailed a promising young career. Ferlin makes my list for his contributions in the 2015 playoffs, as his physical presence in that series had many Canucks, <coughs> Kevin Bieksa, scared to go into a corner and win a puck battle, ultimately leading to the Canucks being eliminated in six games. Ferland also makes my list as his recent four-year contract will ultimately prove to be a bust contract signed by the Canucks in the 2019 offseason. I do uh, wish Ferland well that in one his recovery. does kind of come in as a as an asterisk con, uh, contract just due to the the poor guy's health i mean it's not uh it's, it's no louis erickson yeah six year 36 million dollar contract but um i spoiler alert, he is not on my list no louis louis uh he's not on my list i'm either, sure it was he his name was so thrown one person that is on my list at number seven uh happens to be the Canucks all-time leading goal scorer from the defense. That is one Alexander Edler, who, as of current, has 800-plus games played. Uh, he is the highest-scoring defenseman. Uh, and from to where he is now to where he began, I think that's a – it's definitely a, a pretty amazing feat. He was a young kid. He struggled at times. He – he had that – you could see it, that it was there. But he sometimes struggled to get it going. But he's really turned it around to be one of the one of the top solid defensemen on the team. Again, a leader. Uh, and he – you know, I know he picked you up a lot of points in our hockey pool last season. <laughs> uh, that he did. He spends so much time in his own zone. He is, he, is, uh, he is willing to do the dirty work. Maybe not quite the dirty work Salo did in the in the one year in the playoffs when he blocked a shot with uh, his boys, but he does do the dirty work to uh, help his team out. I got to admit, I'm a little surprised that he's on your list. I would think uh, there would have been more. How many? I, I ended choose? up going with three. Three, so yeah, I don't know that he would have been in my top three of defensemen, but I it, understandable. He's he's been an all-around Canuck for a long time. He's now more of that kind of calming presence on the back end and look to for leadership. And you know, I, one knock on him is he can't stay healthy for eighty-two games. But you know, he's he's a decent player. I don't know that he would end up on my all-time list that's for sure and so I, I do alert, think he is a, a good presence to be there list. for you know our, our young up-and-coming potential calder winner quinn hughes and hughes name you know guys like hughes Patterson, horvat best they did not make any of my lifts not even the honorable mentions because i don't want to throw guys names out there who have been in the league no more than three years you know <laughs> Well, that was, well, is that just because he's number one on your spot because he scores so much <laughs> against the Flames? 
I don't see that foresee that happening there. But you know, I think Edler is a good guy to have for those up and coming players. I think he'll definitely help them learn the league, help show them what it means to be a pro, and hopefully get them on the right uh, right career path. I don't disagree with you on that. Okay, so number seven on my list may be one of the more controversial picks. But I thought you were going to say Matt Cook. None other than Dan Cloutier. <laughs> uh, no, I, I just I couldn't do it with any of the, the, the Matt Cooks of the world. I kind of, I have one player on my list that I think epitomizes the Matt Cooks and Alec. Alex Burroughs of the world later on. But number seven on my list is Dan Cloutier. Cloutier was in Vancouver for five years. He was really only a starter for three of those five years, where he posted 109 wins and 68 losses. He had a career save percentage of 906, which is okay. And a uh, goals against average of 2.42, which is respectable. Cuche served as starter for three years in the goalie graveyard known as Vancouver and posted respectable numbers playing behind a powerhouse lineup that included Marcus Naslin. But his best work as a Canuck always came in the playoffs, whether it be letting in backbreaking goals from center ice to being injured in 2004. Dan Cloutier rose to the occasion and was always there. To yeah, help I knew you were going to bring up that center ice shot. Playoff contention. <laughs> Oh, I well, know. Well, it did know. single-handedly turn the tide in that series. Yes. I believe that yes. was against Detroit, was it? Or was it Nick Lidstrom? <laughs> you know, all kidding aside, Cluche was respectable, but I think he, the, the team he played behind, I think elevated what he was. The Canucks were a powerhouse in the kind of 2002 to 2004 and I think Cloutier was one of their undoings as to why they never really did anything with that team. And, you know, he was a respectable starter, but that's about it. But, you know, again, as a Flames fan, he was an all-timer yeah, for his abilities. To you, you're, like, in the you're right. You can put a, a great team in front of a, a goaltender, and, of course, they're going to make it easier when, you know, if you let a couple in, you know your teams can easily put four behind the other goaltender, right? So he definitely had that advantage there. Anti Niemi was what Dan Cluche was supposed to be. A goalie just good well, enough you know, to win US yeah. Cup. He wasn't that great nine years ago but he, yesterday when Kevin Bieksa rifled one top shelf on him uh, in game five of the Western Conference Finals. <laughs> Well, well, that was against the decade that you beat the yeah, Canuck, or that was the, the Sharks uh, Blackhawks, that one. I guess. Yeah, or no, that, uh, the Sharks, that, that fluttering rifle went uh, went yeah. in right below the goal I was above. So, but kind of keeping on a goalie trend here in the numbers, got my number six is Lou. I've got yeah, <laughs> with uh, 448 games played, 252 wins, 137 losses. 50 OT losses. Um, he's the franchise leader in wins. And again, just the guy that had the ability to 
keep the Canucks in games. I know he took a lot of heat in the playoffs. Um, like you already mentioned, Vancouver's a goalie graveyard. It doesn't matter if the Canucks lose one nothing or 2-1, it's the goaltender's fault. Can't put the puck in the net himself, and he wasn't getting a lot of that help in the playoffs from, from the forwards. Um, I think he took definitely a lot of undue blame. I think uh, it always seemed to fall on his shoulders because he was so dependent on, and he... He, you know, he was very talented. He was the guy. He, I think, the Canucks mismanaged some things, and that led to him leaving. But uh, Roberto Luongo is probably one of the, if not the best goaltender in, in franchise history. Roberto Luongo, to me, was going to be on my list. And the only reason he's not on my list is because he did end up winning a gold medal. And other than that, he was, in my opinion, an epic failure for the Vancouver Canucks. He never got them to the promised land. He was a phenomenal regular season goaltender. And he was an average playoff goaltender at best. And the amount of backbreaking goals that he let in for those dominant teams, you know, 2011, 2012. He let in too many soft goals at inappropriate times that he just, to me, I don't think he's an all-timer. I think regular season-wise, absolutely can. I agree with him being an all-timer on your list. I, I can't, I don't see it for when it comes to push and shove. I think there's well, I think, yeah, I mean, in franchise the playoffs are always going to be the, the tarnish on his legacy in Vancouver. Um, you know, again, and I, I kind of, as a fan, I know it doesn't matter who the goaltender was, that he wasn't the first one to have to go through a, a playoff run where the Canucks scoring dried up because the secondary scoring wasn't there. And whether it be the West Coast Express or the Sedines, um, the, the team wasn't putting the puck in the net. They a lot of the yeah. skaters got a free pass on lackluster performances after some of those dominant years, like you talk about. Um, but again, like I say, I, if all those playoff series were lost because the, the Canucks were losing six five, right, where the Canucks are putting five pucks in the net, but he's given up that fifth and sixth one for the loss then you can put it on the goaltender because they're the, the, the forwards and defensemen are putting the puck in the net. So that's not happening. I think, I think his share of the blame, Yeah. not saying he, he didn't deserve some of it, but I think his share was always the lion's share as opposed to what everyone else got. I think there was also a lot of pressure on him with Corey Schneider being around too. And, just like the backup quarterback, the the backup goalie is every fan's favorite. And I think uh, that ultimately led to major issues in Vancouver with both of those guys. And I think it, it absolutely and it you had know, a major impact. John Tortorella coming in, the nail in the coffin was not playing uh, Luongo in that Heritage Classic and putting Eddie, La- Eddie Lack in that. It's just the kind of the, you know, yeah. the final FU 
in his time in Vancouver. But he is a former flame too. I mean, Spoiler I thought that alert, I thought that would have uh, cemented him in there. Yeah, he, he I mean, was. I'm sure he'll be on my top ten flames. <laughs> well, keeping with the goalie theme, number six on my list is none other than Kirk McLean. And as stated before, Kirk played with the Canucks for 11 years. He had 211 wins and 228 losses. Solid win-loss record there. And 62 ties. He had an absolutely stellar 887 save percentage and a very lofty 3.28 goals against average. Kirk McLean, regarded by many Canuck fans to be the greatest in team history, had a solid 11-year run with the Canucks, posting more losses than wins, playing to a sub-900 save percentage and a stellar 3.28 goals against average. Again, a lot of McLean's best work was done in the playoffs. In 1989, Kirk single-handedly carried his team to a seventh game in round one, but ultimately, unlike his rival Mike Vernon at the other end of the ice, could not make the great saves required to prolong a series. McLean gave up a goal to the ultimate sniper. In Did you Jim have to check Fabulski the dictionary on how to spell that? that? Ended that great playoff series. <laughs> I would have. Uh, nope. We discussed this before. Kirk McLean. Some think he is the best goalie in Canucks franchise history. Again, he. 1994 was his shining moment, but in my opinion, the numbers stayed otherwise. And just like every other goalie in the goalie graveyard, he never won a championship. And thus, Mark right. McLean ends at number six on my list. Well, Ken, how about you give us a couple more of your honorable mentions? And then maybe we'll do a quick, I'll do a yep. quick recap. So, I mean, for me, who we've just to list off so a few far. more names, kind of looking at that 94 team. I've got Lidster, Doug Lidster. Greg Adams, um, you know, a, a, a team captain that always kind of stands out that is still with the organization today, Stan Smeal. He's, uh, he's another guy that really is a honorable mention for the steamer. I, I, I got a couple, yeah, you know, Schmiel. even Richard Brodeur, wow. we want to talk about another goalie, Alexander McGilney gets the honorable mention. Wow. And I think my last one that, uh, I I struggled with. He's definitely an honorable mention. I don't know Alexander Burroughs. You know, I think that <laughs> that's why he's an honorable mention. I think his story, just how he got to the cool. NHL um, and where he ended up. I know he played a lot of you know a few seasons on the line with the Sedins, and the Sedins. Let's not kid ourselves. The Sedins made him a forty goal scorer. The Sedins could turn around and make anyone other than Louis Erickson a thirty plus goal scorer. Um, and he he took down the Chicago Blackhawks in Game Seven in overtime, so he'll, uh, he, as they say, they, he slayed the dragon. That's what as they say. So the flutter. Puck. He is my last honorable mention. Well, my a uh, couple of honorable mentions from my list should come as no surprise to Ken, and that would be Henrik and Daniel Sedin. They obviously do not meet the criteria to be on my honorable me- or on my top 10 Canucks of all time list, though I will give them a bit of a shout out. They probably are the two greatest players in Canucks history. 
as far as what it epitomized to be a Vancouver. No, I mean, after that beauty of a goal they scored where Henrik wins the puck back to the point, the defenseman gives it back to Henrik, a little between the leg, no look, tip pass to his brother, Daniel, who then skates in, goes between the legs, top shelf on Kippersoff. I could understand why they aren't on your list. (laughs) I think they got lucky against the Flames quite a bit. Well, you get lucky every once in a while. Yeah. Okay, so to recap, we'll uh, go down our our picks so far. So uh, on number 10 on Ken's list is, for some reason, Kevin Bieksa. And number 10 on my list is Ed Jovanovsky. Number nine on Ken's list is Marcus Nasland. For obvious reasons, he was a great player. Uh, number nine on my list was none other than Sven Berchi. Uh, number eight on Ken's list was Kirk McLean, one of the greatest supposed goalies in Canucks history. Uh, number eight on my list was Michael Furland. Uh, on my list, I kept with a goalie and went with Dan Cloutier and his stellar playoff performances. And Ken chose Alex Edler, a bit of a controversial pick to me to be in his top defenseman of all times, but a solid player nonetheless. Uh, number six on Ken's list, another controversial pick in my opinion, but I understand is Roberto Luongo, probably the greatest goalie in regular season franchise history. And I went with Kirk McLean and his ability to not stop the puck in game seven of overtime against the Calgary Flames. Number five. Well, who's Matthias number five Oldland, on your list, who, Ken? For the Canucks, had 770 games played, 325 wow. points. Uh, yeah, for me, I just felt he was a solid and dependable defenseman. Um, he was part of that Swedish group that came in in those dominant years. Um, you know, and another guy that was uh, a draft pick of the Canucks that developed into, in my opinion, a, uh, a very solid, a very good player that... Um, when you think of the Canucks defense, number two is in my mind, always there. Now, I did, did not count the man games lost to injury in your. No, cause he might've been up around 1300 games Matias like the Sedins, but I, I, I did. <laughs> I was just talking about the actual product on the ice again. Exactly. Um, he was one of the guys that, you know, was an example for the, yeah, he, he was an example for the younger guys coming in. Yeah. You know, again, kind of talk about with, life. with Edler as well as the, that leadership um, that he had. I just think he, he was a guy that I, you could always look at. You didn't question too much about what he did. He, obviously everyone makes mistakes, but he didn't make enough that uh, he cost his team on a nightly basis. Yeah, no, he's, again, I don't know that he'd be on my list, but he is a solid, solid player when it comes to the Canucks. He, uh, I understand. I, he was there and he was, he was a good player. So I, I understand him being there. Um, number five on my list, and you had already mentioned that this player was not on your list, but there's no way he can't be on my list. And that is Todd Bertuzzi. Todd spent eight years with the Canucks, playing 518 games. He had 188 goals, 261 assists, 449 points. Uh, With all those points, he played to a stellar plus three in his career in Vancouver. 
and he amassed 822 penalty minutes. I was just going to um, ask, yeah. I think 820 of those may have come on one play. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that here shortly. Uh, Todd Bertuzzi, for a short period of time in the early 2000s, was the ultimate power forward in the game, culminating with a 46-goal campaign in 2003, playing alongside Marcus Naslin and Brendan Morrison. Todd's greatest work as a Canuck came in the 2004 season, as we saw a significant dip in production from 46 goals to 17 goals and an incident that leaves an extreme black eye on the sport of hockey and city of Vancouver when he sucker punched Steve Moore and ended Moore's career due to a broken neck. Bertuzzi was suspended for the balance of the regular seasons and playoffs, which included an Yeah, that is a black eye. That is flames. Uh, that was something. You know, it just yeah, I mean, it was something, and he was something, <laughs> and uh, he was something in Calgary. Yeah. but that only lasted for one season. And, yeah, that uh, was just a, an ugly, from ugly NHL, incident that uh, you just don't want to see happen. No. no. Actually, I gotta say, I I'll give you. Enough time I will let you do number four Who's first. Number four on your list, because uh, I have a Brian Burke moment coming up. Okay. I, I have a Brian Burke moment, so I will. I will give you, you number four Burke to, to lead us up. off here. Okay. Okay. Well, number four on my list was only on your honorable mentions, and that actually shocked me. And that is Stan Schmiel. Stan played 13 years, all with the Canucks, 896 games, 262 goals, 411 points, 673, or 411 assists, 673 points. And like most Canucks, played to a solid minus eight. He was there for the rough years. (laughs) You want to talk, those minuses are, they're earned. (laughs) He may, he may get a a pass on that for how rough his time was there. (laughs) Um, And, you know, his numbers there, he still sits fifth overall in Canucks forward scoring. Um, yeah, that he does. Stan Schmiel spent his entire career with the Vancouver Canucks, tallying 262 goals and 673 points and amassing a solid 1,556 penalty minutes. Schmiel, for the longest time, was the face of the Canucks organization in a very dark time. Stan Schmiel's greatest moment as a Canuck came in overtime of Game 7 in 1989 as he raced down the ice on a breakaway and a chance to end end the series, only to be thwarted by the great glove hand of Mike Vernon. Schmiel's team ultimately lost that series as Jim Poplinski sniped a shot from the top of the crease, baffling the above-mentioned Kirk McLean. Well, at least he didn't have a Patrick Steffen moment. In 1989. Yeah. Well, um, this yeah, one I mean, Stan for me, part of the list, like, I went with, you know, I was looking at the numbers, I was looking at the, the top Canucks of all times, and, you know, looking at it, I didn't see Stan play all that much uh, growing up. So, but his, you know, definitely a leader on a team that was, you know, not doing well. Uh, 
but yeah, you guys still around the organization now today. And, uh, hopefully that continues for, for a while. Cause, uh, he's, he's a bright hockey guy. All right. So my Brian Burke yeah. moment is this well, is my number, number four, four on number your three, list, Ken. where at the four and three spot, the Sedins, um, Oh, and I'm not I'm not going to put a first name to the to one spot or the other, um, much like Brian. I think, well, I think Brian did announce Daniel and Henrik Sedin, but they are my number three and four, or four and three. Uh, both played over 1,300 games. Henrik had 1,330. Daniel had 1,306. Uh, points wise, 1,070 for Henrik, 1,041 for Daniel. You know, when it came down to these guys' career. From day one till the end, they were with the Canucks, and I, I can, you know, I'm gonna be honest. I got goosebumps right now that I was there for their final game here in Edmonton of their career. I got to see them finish it out, uh, which for me was a, a great honor because these guys, just as as human beings, are great people. Take away the hockey, the things they've done for the Vancouver community, Vancouver charities. Um, you know, when they signed one of their last contracts with the Canucks, they they took a million dollars of their own money and donated it. I think it was to the children's hospital. And the organization had no idea. So they, they said a lot of times they'll put that in for players to do. These guys did it on their own without saying anything. They didn't want the the recognition for doing that. And that's just, you know, they're on their off-ice contribution as players, I do remember them coming in at, at uh, 19 years old thinking, these guys aren't going to make it. And uh, very, very wrong on that. These guys could... It was a very tough start, but I think that only it fueled them to them. get better, get stronger. Um, these guys could make some of the most beautiful passes in a, in a four-foot square. You know, it didn't matter how many guys were checking them. They moved that puck so well, and they would find the guy that was open in front of the net for a tap-in. You look at the guys they played with, they didn't really get to play with the Alex McGillney's of the world, the the Marcus, you know, they did play with Marcus Naslin, but a lot of their career was playing with guys like Trent Klatt, Anson Carter. Hey, Anson Carter had one good year in Vancouver and then asked for the world in a new contract. When the Canucks said, no, no, we know why you're scoring 30-plus goals. Uh, we're going to pay you accordingly. He walked, went to Columbus, and they they signed him for that the money he wanted. And then they quickly realized they were missing the other two pieces that made Carter a 30-goal scorer the season before. Um, you know, they made Alex Burroughs, as mentioned, a 40-goal scorer. They just made everyone around them better. They drew everyone on the ice to them to try and stop them. Their ability to cycle the puck well, is the greatest I think the league has ever seen. It was I'll, amazing. I'll give them that. And, and, just, and you look at something that they, they started implementing in their game times. was the slap pass or like the, the slap, you know, into the corner and the other guy skates in on it. You know, that's happening more and more in the league. And they were two of the guys that started that. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. They, uh, or the region their game slap was incredible. Slot. And uh, 
on and off the ice. I think just honestly, great people. You never heard anything negative about the Sedins um, throughout their career. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm, I'm honestly surprised that they're not number one and two on your list. I'm pretty sure I know who number one and two are on your list. And if it was up to me, I would have had Henrik and Daniel first and second. But they're absolutely all-time Canucks. I don't have a lot of negative to yeah. say about the sisters. They, they, were, they were tremendous hockey players. And I wasn't disappointed to uh, see them retire and not torch the flames any longer though and i did enjoy 2015 when they didn't well detroit had the blueprint to how to stop them just punch we won that postseason series like most yeah yeah well it worked ask the bruins no i there's nothing wrong with uh henrik and daniel sedin and i wish i could say the same thing about number three on my list but unfortunately there's lots wrong with this guy and number three uh, on my list, Kessler. the greatest Canucks of all time, is Ryan Kessler. Kessler spent 10 painful seasons as a Vancouver Canuck. And no, they weren't painful because of his dominance on the ice, but his pitiful actions both on and off the ice. Ryan Kessler is a self-absorbed, overrated hockey player who only once in his 15-year career broke the 30-goal plateau, notching a career high in 2011 of 41 goals. Kessler's career hit the apex in 2011 when he helped lead his team to the Stanley Cup final. And along with the on-ice antics and temper tantrums of his teammate Alex Burrows, made the 2011 Canucks one of the most hated teams in recent hockey history. The hockey gods shined upon the hockey world that year, and with great satisfaction to many, Kessler was forced to watch Zidane Chara lift the Stanley Cup at center ice in his own home barn. Just a few tumultuous seasons later, in true Ryan Kessler style, he selfishly demanded a trade out of Vancouver that set back the organization for years with the truly pathetic return of a third-round pick, Nick Bonino and Lucas. Yeah, the, well, I mean... Maybe that, Kessler wasn't such a bad guy after all. He handcuffed the team. He like, I want to go to Anaheim or Chicago. Okay, so you want to go to one of our top rivals in Chicago or Anaheim. And, and, and his agent and him made it known. So if you're the rest of the league that he's only going to accept a deal to go to one of those two, well, as the Canucks, what are you going to do? You know you're handcuffed. No one's going to come with you with their best offer. Um, I know he was there. The Sedins wanted him at their ceremony. Um, he was there in the fans did give him an applause. I think he apologized quite a bit leading up to that because he didn't, I think he didn't want to take away from the Sedins, but um, a lot of people still aren't happy with what he did and how he went out. I mean, you know what? It happens. Guys want to want to change. They feel that their career is either not going forward anymore. They're not getting a fair shake. Sure. Say, I want out, but don't make it public. Don't, don't air the dirty laundry. Um, on your way out. Ryan Kessler was a pretty boy jackass, mediocre at best hockey player that wanted to 
be the superstar of a team yet wasn't good enough. And his on-ice antics of the slashing and cross-checking and, you know, he would never drop the gloves with anybody. And, or if he did, it was because he was jumping him or he, he was famous for taking a 10 minute misconduct with eight minutes left in a game that his team was losing badly. Cause he was just a poor sport. Like he was so overrated in my opinion, he was barely a half a point, a game player through his career in Vancouver. He had 655 games and 393 points. Like he was so overrated and so at the time worshipped by the Canucks community. And you know what? They got what they deserved. And Ryan Kessler was an asshole who had to get out of there. And he set that organization back years. And I'm, I'm, Proud yet. Oh, I don't think he did himself any favors either during the, was it the 2010 Olympics when he said he hated Canada? You know, you play in a Canadian city, the Olympics are in a Canadian, they're your home city as a player. And, you know, it's not even like, you know, the great rivalry, we don't like each other. Like, you know, I hate Canada. It's not, you're not even making it about the team. You just flat out throw it at the country you play in. Yeah, he didn't even get an honorable mention in my mind, and he, it wasn't even a that wasn't even a tough one, you know. Yeah, let's move on from Kessler because he's all right. So you want to go with your number two? And I don't like talking about him. All right, it's my number two. No, you can go with your um, number two. I'm pretty sure I know who it is. Longtime captain of the Canucks. Was only was only ever traded. I I got my number one. Wow. I think you have to tell who my number one is now. Your number but, one. Uh Trevor Linden, you know, face of the franchise. You, you talk Canucks even still today, and everyone is gonna put Trevor Linden um as the main guy. I think as a leader, um he was a captain, you know, I think what he did for that team, like he put, he, he went out there. He may not have been the, the most highest scoring guy. Like he had 733 points over his career, 318 goals, 415 assists with the Canucks. Um, you know, and I think the only reason he didn't play his entire career is the Canucks went out and signed Messier, brought in Keenan and the downfall was from there. You know, they, he, he, air quoting gave the captaincy to Messier and I don't think don't think anyone in Vancouver ever saw Messier as the captain it was always going to be Trevor and then Trevor was out the door um very happy Brian Burke brought him back but this is a guy like one of the most iconic pictures I remember from that 94 cup run is Trevor Linden with his arm around Kirk McLean you know giving the old head tap you know they got blood on their jerseys there it just Probably from a captain that uh, I know. I, I don't. I don't know. I, I don't recall. I'm trying to put that out of my mind. Um, but for me, like he was just one of the faces of the franchise. Like you know, I don't. I, when he came back as president, um, I, I worried about that because I didn't know how it was going to go. Clearly, didn't go good because there seems to have been 
Well, it just seems that Benning has the ownership's <laughs> ears <laughs> and Trevor was trying to do the rebuild one way um, and Benning was going around him. So I think they decided Trevor's like, I'm going to go. And that was probably, you know, for the best because you, you don't want to tarnish the the legacy by having the Canucks actually come down and fire him. You know, they agreed that they'd step aside and go their own ways. But for me, he was just, yeah, like he's always like he's going to will always be a Canuck. I kind of ignore those years where he was a New York Islander, Montreal Canadian, a Washington capital. To me, that didn't happen because he should have never yeah. left. He should have never been traded. Um great leader. I think he set the example for, you know, Nasland as a captain, um, the way the Sedins, you know, maybe not leaders, big talkers, but, you know, set the, the, the limit for or the bar for them. Uh, again, the off ice, what he did in the community, how much time he spent at Canucks place, the children's hospital. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to, be in a autograph signing with them as a kid, you know, and one of the nicest guys, my, my brother who was, uh, oh, 94, he would have been, he would have been eight asked Trevor to come to his birthday in May. Right. This is before the season was over. And instead of just saying, Oh, I can't do it. You know, sorry. He's like, well, you know what? I'll see what I can do. I might be playing hockey at the time. I hope we're still at the playoff times, but you know what? I'll see what I can do. He didn't just blow him off. He, you know, he, he tried to make him feel good about it. Right. And I think that, that, uh, that was just the guy he was and very, very good. It was yeah. very tough not putting him at number one. Yeah, no, I, I'm actually quite shocked. He's not number one on your list. I think Trevor Linden is, is the Vancouver Canucks like the whenever you think of and I actually Henrik and Daniel may have overtaken him for that but I think Trevor Linden is you know I guess you could call him Mr. Canuck he epitomized that franchise he was the face of the franchise on and off the ice for years upon years I don't think he was ever the greatest hockey player skill wise I think he was good but he just had so many other intangible qualities like his leadership that uh, I, I can't uh, or disagree for, with for me. It was tough. My, so my top four. And, and they frankly, could I'm be shocked ones. he's not number one. That, that... So. Yeah, I would, I could see that. So number two on my list oh. was the eventual hall of famer, Cam Neely. Cam Neely spent three years in Vancouver. He played 201 games. He had 51 goals, 53 assists, 104 points, unshockingly, minus 54, and 320 penalty minutes. He was a young and up-and-coming superstar in the league and spent three, in my opinion, solid entry-level years in Vancouver. Cam Neely may be the greatest first-round draft choice in team history. Chosen ninth overall in the 1983 entry draft, Neely entered the league as a rugged two-way power forward destined to be an eventual Hall of Famer. Neely notched 51 goals and 104 points in his first three seasons with the teams, obviously a star on the rise. In the summer of 1986, Canucks GM Jack Gordon decided that the Hall of Famer 
to be was replaceable by the oft-injured Barry Peterson, who had just come off two serious soldier, sol- shoulder surgeries. Neely and a first round, which turned out to be third overall pick, who became all-star defenseman Glenn Wesley, were shipped to Boston for Barry Peterson and Patrick Sundstrom. Neely went on to score 395 goals and 694 points as a Boston Bruin. The trade of Cam Neely to the Bruins is by far the worst trade in Vancouver. I will say Patrick Sundstrom had 374 games played, 133 goals, 342 points. Um, uh, Barry Barry Peterson, I'm not seeing on on any of my lists right here. Um, That there is karma coming back in the Canucks favor in the that's our Naslin for storing off trade right yeah yeah and I think the hockey gods yeah it's stupid with Cam Neely we're gonna we're gonna do you a favor I uh, I'm glad I'm five and I didn't understand anything about hockey at the time because you know at my age now uh I still don't get it I really don't. It's almost like trading Brett Holland in early in the part of his career too. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't think you can you can do enough uh, diagrams to draw a picture of how much. trading for Cam Neely won the the 2011 Cup, but <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Ken. Why don't All I right. put one on my list? And then uh, we'll let you finish off doing number one on your list. So I'm going to, I'm going to let you take a guess at who you think my number one is on my list. And I'll just read you some stats and see if you can uh, take a quick guess at who you think it might be. Uh, This player spent three years in Vancouver playing 207 games he had 52 goals, 110 point, 110 assists for 162 points and a solid minus 37. Well, I kind of, I, I should have paid more attention, but you started talking in his own doubt. Um, I want to say Marty Jelena. Yeah, just because I think back to what he done against the Canucks as a flame and what Marty your whole Jelena. theme is here. <laughs> Well, I, I like where your head was at, but I went with a player that I think did even more damage to the Canucks organization. Well, probably Dana Merzen then. Than, than Marty Jelena did as a Calgary Flame. <laughs> the greatest Canuck that of all time son of a is bitch. clearly none other than Mark Messier. <laughs> Messier was a six-time Stanley Cup champion and was known as one of the greatest leaders in the game. The track record of achievements to bring in Messier was undeniable. That's where Mark Messier's greatness ended. His tenure with the Canucks was a disaster. In three seasons, he scored 52 goals with the Canucks and tallied 162 points and was a staggering minus 37. The acquisition of Messier led to an unneeded changing of the guard in Vancouver that led to GM Pat Quinn getting fired Fan favorites Kirk McLean, Gino Ojic, Dave Babbage, and Martin Jelena all getting traded. But the icing on the cake was Mike Keenan, head coach of the Canucks, saw fit that franchise great and shockingly not number one on your list, Trevor Linden, also needed to be outright replaced by an aged, 
aging and unproductive Messier. Thank goodness that trade worked oh, you, out for the you're Canucks. Missing a player. It may have been an utter disaster for the Canucks organization. All these points above are ample reason to give Messier the number one spot on my list. But there is one reason that solidifies this rank. Let's rewind the clock to 1994 and visit the player the Canucks thought they were acquiring. Messier was a dominant force in leading the Rangers to the Stanley Cup final. And unlike so many Canucks players in history, Messier got the job done by eliminating the Cinderella Canucks in Game 7 of the Stanley Cup final. And leaving this mighty proud well, in your exodus, you also missed zero Stanley Cups in franchise history. Oh. Well, I, I I will get there, but yeah, that that signing that? was just it it was yeah it it was trouble from the beginning. Um, I guess yeah, Burray left as well. Oh, it was it was it was. Gross! It was, was horrible. Um, there was no chemistry with that team. When he came in, you're you're talking you're you're not far removed from the '94 run. I just, uh... yeah, and and everyone that was part of it, he was left. brought in to finish, and the not through their run. own doing. It was you bring in Keen and you and you just pick away at the franchise player by player by player. And yeah, it was ugly. It was a good thing. You guys won that trade and brought yeah. back Bertuzzi and Luongo and such. Well, we didn't get Luongo in that one, man. That would have been bad. It's good thing. You didn't pull a Neely trade with that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, yeah, we had a, we made a few Bertuzzi, moves. Like the return with Burray was Kevin Weeks. Himself. Uh I oh, don't even want to remember that one. It was not great. Pavel Burray for what we got back was not not um fair. Well, well Ken, we just finished talking about him. With, My number the... one. Number one, legitimate Canuck of all Now, time. this is a guy that he only played 428 games with the Canucks. But this is the guy that in that time had 478 points. And 254 of those were goals. He had 224 assists, which honestly, the point total didn't surprise me. How split a little bit did. Um, this is one of the guys that he was a Russian rocket. The Canucks took a chance in the draft on him because no one thought they could get him out of, out of Russia. He was not a first round pick. He was, if I remember correctly, sixth round, this was a guy that the Canucks got out and he was a legitimate star game one. And I think this is a guy that for me was the first legitimate superstar the Canucks had. On their team. This is a guy that you would tune in to watch the Canucks just to see what he could do. What he could do with the puck at top speed, man, if he didn't have the knee injuries and, you know, not just in Vancouver, but throughout his career, this guy would be, I think, in the same breath as some of the top scorers in NHL history.
Yeah, he was an electrifying hockey player. And I remember when they brought in Alex McGinley yeah. to play alongside him. And it, it, it was getting to watch it was, uh, those two. Daunting. As a Canucks fan, playing together, man, it it, magic on ice, like just the the speed that they played the game. It wasn't so much with the Sedins. You had that magic in the corner where you can move the puck around. These guys did it at a hundred miles per hour, you know, stick to skate to stick to back of the net. And I think, you know, they asked Kelly Rudy one time, what move of Pavel Burry's do you, do you hate the most? He's like, the one where he puts his arms in the air, it really pisses me off. Uh, yeah, well, to be fair, a lot of guys did that to Rudy, but um, Pavel, for sure, he just had that <laughs> well, ability to, to get in away from a defenseman. No matter how much, you know, they were already backing up to, to try and close the gap on him because they knew in a foot race they weren't, they weren't beating him. This guy was just, he was electric. So... He was I absolutely electric. I can't Loved deny. It. I hated the fact that he played in Vancouver. I hated the goal he scored in '94. It was it was uh, it was painful to watch. It was a, a tremendous goal. It, that goal was Pavel Bure. It was lightning quick speed and a great move on a goalie. And he was he was an absolutely electric hockey player. And I I can't deny him being number one on your list or within the top four. It was like you mentioned earlier. I think there was four players deserving to be number one on your list. And yeah. I think he, his, I think, uh, his take the team on, on his back. Having him there. Was, there's, okay. I score now. There's nothing wrong. And he would just go and he would put it in the net. And it wasn't unless they were tripping them or um, hooking them, slashing them. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, I think if he could play in today's game with the, without the clutching and grabbing and, just the freedom that some of these top talent players have to be top talent players. Oh man. Yeah. I think he'd be right up there with, you know, in the conversation of greatest goal scorers for sure. (laughs) Yeah. So to recap, I'll go through Ken's top 10 legitimate Vancouver Canucks of all time. I don't, uh, we'll skip my list. I think I've made my reasons. And I think they're very solid reasons why these players are in the top 10. Uh, number 10 for Ken was Kevin Bieksa. At number nine was Marcus Nasland. At number eight was Kirk McLean. At number seven, Alex Edler. At six, Roberto Luongo. Number five, Matthias Oland. Number four and three, Sedins. Number two, Trevor Linden. And yeah, and this, like I say, this list was, time, uh, according to Ken, is Pavel. It, it was a little difficult. It was just tough to really put guys, like, you know, Nasland probably could make a case to, to be a lot higher. Um, you know, just, and even some of the guys on the, the honorable mention, you know, to, how the guy like McGilney, he wasn't there forever, wasn't there for very long, but he did have a, uh, an effect on the team. No, I can't. Kevin really BX is not a surprise. List, Ken. There's <laughs> some surprises, but there there always is in a top ten list. <laughs> I would think all three of your defensemen are. Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, that's uh, to be honest. My honorable mentions Jovanovsky. could probably be forty players deep. 
Um, but I just think the guys that I had for myself, the guys I had on my list in the 10 and they're honorable as a fan. That's yeah, I just saw those guys ahead of some of the other ones like Jovo and stuff like that. Well, Ken, I think that should wrap up another episode for you and I. I think that was a lot of fun. There was some uh, very interesting talking. Absolutely, points. I think the list and was very, very, very fun uh, to do. Brought back some definitely some good from the and also painful memories. Episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Oh, hey, hey, just because he didn't get Pavel to marry a, a full house, you know, Candace Cameron doesn't make Pavel list. any less better of a hockey player than his brother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So if you are listening, you do want to hear something from yeah, us, you want to hear a topic of uh, discussion, possible list to go through, uh, you can hit us up at the bleacher connection at gmail.com. Trevor, what's your Twitter? I'm at BleacherCon2. You can hit us up on, up on Twitter. Uh, we'll be posting where you can find one. the episode again. Uh, again, if you do enjoy it, tell your friends. Pass it along. For us, this is a, just something fun to do. We love sports. We enjoy talking about it. All right. Thanks for listening.